Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. As an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight, I sit in his shadow, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has brought me to the banqueting house, and his intention towards me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Oh, that his left hand were under my head, and that his right hand embraced me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove in the clefts of the rock, In the covert of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that run, that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag, on the cleft mountains. The second reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which you can find on page 959 of the Bibles. So chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honour, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, Jesus said that the truth will set you free. It's a great, great statement. The truth will set you free. 
promise, a hope, a foundation. But for many people, in no area does that sound less believable than the topic that we've set ourselves today, which is the topic of sexuality. Because if there's one thing that everyone knows and most proclaim, it's that a Christian ethic of sex, which is easily and accurately summarised as the conviction and commitment that sex is for a man-woman marriage, and outside of that, the Christian call is to celibacy. Well, that's not freedom. That's slavery. That's misery. That's deprivation. That's cruel. And in its place, there is a new story, a liberating story, a revolution. It has become incredibly powerful, in part because sexual experience can be incredibly powerful for good or for harm. And so this morning, uh, we're going to have a go at unlearning some more untruths to allow the gospel to shape our story about sex and then spend some time on some of the issues that this clash of stories that we see raises for us. Um, we'll possibly have a question time, depends on how things are going. Alison has told me, don't do it, you idiot. Uh, and she's a very wise person, but then I'm a bit of a, you know, angel's fool to tread, uh, you know, so on, angel's fear to tread. Three headings, the modern story of sex and sexuality, the gospel story of sex and sexuality, and then thirdly, uh, some sound bites on some issues. So firstly, then the modern story of sex. Uh, as I say, there aren't uh, that many areas of life that get the title revolution. There's the glorious revolution in England uh, in the 17th century. There's the communist revolution in China. And then there's the sexual revolution in so much of the world in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, the creation, legalization, and widespread adoption of the contraceptive pill meant that for the first time in human history, women, especially unmarried women, had significant control over what for millennia the predictable consequences of sex, which fall profoundly on women. And if for some reason the contraception didn't work, then the legalization of abortion, which followed shortly after, completed the prerequisites for the sexual revolution. And as I say, for the first time in human history, women were free. As many uh, feminists put it these days, uh, women were free to have sex like men had done for millennia. Freedom. It's worth just pausing and noticing what the content of freedom is. Uh, freedom has come to be defined in terms of the harm principle. Uh, how many times have you heard it said, and perhaps how many times have you said yourself, um, everything's okay as long as it doesn't harm other people? You're familiar with that phrase? You've heard that? It's, it's actually it's really pretty Powerful statement. Everything's okay as long as you don't harm other people. That's what it means to be free. That no one gets to tell you how to live. That you live your life, your way, and the boundaries go all the way out to the only limit, which is that you don't interfere with anyone else's freedom. In other words, being, uh, freedom is being constrained only by yourself. Your desires, your choices your preferences. Now just uh, pause a moment and see how that becomes a really deeply radical project. The, the mission is to take down all boundaries if that's what you want. 
whether that's a marriage as the context for sex or social expectations or even of your own body. The only thing that makes you, you, is your desires. The psychic, emotional centre of your soul that only you know and only you control. Nothing is to interfere with that. You're familiar with that story? You've heard that only about six million times? And what makes it so powerful is that it is both right and wrong. If it was just dumb, then it'd be easy, right? But it's not. It's both right and wrong. On the one hand, there's something very right about that story. It is, I would suggest, a great way to understand uh, how the law of the land, the, the state, ought to intersect with people. Okay? It's a, it's a brilliant way to understand how the, the state ought to intersect with individuals. The law ought not to intervene in people's lives unless harm is being done to another person. That's the state's job, right? To uphold public justice, to prevent people harming one another and to punish them when they do. And if the state goes beyond that to try and interfere in people's lives more than... Well, then it's, then it's, it's working above its pay grade. It's overreach. It uh, means, for example, it was always wrong. It was crazy. Did you know this? To have laws that outlawed homosexual sex in New South Wales up till 1984. And in Tasmania, always a little slow in Tasmania, 1994. Crazy. It's just above the government's pay grade to deal with these kinds of issues. But if someone is harming another person, especially against their will, well then, boom, in comes the full power of the state and the law, uh, police and courts and jails uh, to the rescue. So when it comes to how the state intersects with individuals, I want to suggest that the harm principle is, is exactly right. It's great for a legal framework, but it's totally inadequate as an ethical framework. No, no matter who you are, it turns out, there will be more to your decisions about how to live your life than just the only limit on what I do is harming other people. No one lives like that. Everyone has some sense of the dignity of others which calls for our active love and respect and honouring as well as the virtues of desiring the others flourishing, not just refraining from harming them. Now, when you bring kids up, it's not illegal to be a selfish, miserable, greedy, rude jerk. Not illegal, quite rightly. And if that's the way your kid grows up, you go, go for it. Explore your freedom to the fullest. Be a miserable, selfish, greedy, hateful, rude jerk. Any, any parents want to put their hands up for that one? Of course not. Of course not. It's right that the government doesn't put you in jail for that. But it's dumb to think that that's an actual working ethic. We all know that that's not how life goes. It's especially the case when it comes to sex, precisely because sex can be such a powerful experience 
for good and for ill. One of the really interesting things at the moment is that more and more non-Christian, secular feminists are saying precisely this. It looks a lot like the sexual liberation story, the sexual revolution story, is beginning to, at least in some quarters, fizzle out. And that our culture is beginning to see the underbelly of the sexual liberation ethic. According to a piece written for Vice a few months ago, what we need is, this is, this is a non-Christian, secular feminist, ready? What we need is radical monogamy. Who would have thought it? The author, not a Christian, had explored the alternative options, polyamory, open relationships, and concluded that she, quote, wanted to be one person's joy and delight, and I wanted them to be mine. And so she called this long-term committed one-to-one relationship, surprise, surprise, radical monogamy. Um, Feminist journalist Ellen Willis wrote, sexual liberals have promoted the competing assumption that sex is simply a healthy, enjoyable, biological function with no intrinsic moral connotations. But this bland view not only violates most people's sense that their sexuality is not an isolated function, it also evades the question of sexual destructiveness. Uh, Recently, uh, in uh, a similar book, uh, and I'm going to give you some more detailed quotes here, Uh, the the book's a very, very uh, fine piece of work, very interesting, it's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. She's not a believer, she's a columnist for a politically middle uh, journal called The The New Statesman. Uh, She argues on scientific, historical and sociological grounds that what she calls the monogamous marriage model should be resurrected in secular society. Here's what she says. uh, But while the monogamous marriage model may be relatively unusual, it is also spectacularly successful. When monogamy is imposed on a society by expectations, not uh, by law, uh, it tends to become richer. It has lower rates of both child abuse and domestic violence since conflict between co-wives tends to generate both. Birth rates and crime rates both fall which encourages economic development, and wealthy men denied the opportunity to devote their resources to acquiring more wives, instead invest elsewhere, in property, businesses, employees, and other productive endeavors. Uh, Louise Perry continues, the technology shock of the pill led sexual liberals to the hubristic assumption that our society could be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and could function just fine. The last 60 years have proved that assumption to be wrong. We need to resurrect the social guardrails of what have been torn down. And in order to do that, we must start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Marriage is good. Loveless sex is not empowering. Uh, marriage is good. Amazing. I, I, I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. To, to, to find anyone saying that in public, uh, who, other than some crazy Christian who wanted you know, the rocks thrown at them, astonishing. But more and more, I can give you uh, uh, numerous other books that are making exactly this point. And all of this is to say, as difficult repressive and even dangerous 
Jesus' sexual ethic might sound to our 21st century sexually liberal ears. What do you know? Jesus might actually be onto something. What Jesus says about sexuality might even be good for us, which, of course, is a pretty rock-bottom Christian assumption to hold. And so point two, the gospel story of sex. There are three crucial themes uh, in the gospel story about sex. The first is that sex is not just something you do. It does something to you. Sex is not just something that you do. Sex is something that does something to you. And that something is that it unites you. It connects you. Sex is fundamentally unitive. Uh, The Genesis account, which we've read many, many times, uh, it's one of those kind of foundational texts. It it can't not be, really. Uh, It says that the two, the man and the woman, become one flesh. Uh, That's a deliberate double entendre. Uh, One flesh means one family, one flesh and blood. But, of course, what's going on there is not just shaking hands. Uh, It's one flesh precisely because the sex act itself is a reuniting of flesh. In other words, uh, sex is part of the process by which two people are united, made one flesh. As one author puts it, uh, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently and exclusively. Completely, all of me, permanently, not ending, and exclusively, no one else, completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Or another way to put it uh, is that sex, at least according to the Christian faith, makes a promise. Uh, In the 2001 movie Vanilla Sky, this is maybe showing my age a little bit, uh, Tom Cruise's character has a one-night stand with a woman played by Cameron Diaz, and later on in the movie she challenges him on this, And at one point she says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not? Yeah, here's another quote. It should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly, unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse Sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. That's the promise. To be united, not just physically, but in every way. Which is to say that what's going on with the body in sex is meant to be a token of what is meant to be happening in every way and at a deeper level. The flip side of that is it's just dishonest to have physical union with someone without also having every other kind, a legal, economic, personal, emotional, spiritual union. C.S. Lewis uh, likens sex without marriage uh, to tasting without swallowing and digesting. He goes on to say, sex apart from this context of a deeper union is an attempt to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. 
see, this is just a reflection of Christianity's insistence that the it's only fitting for sex to belong within the bounds of what we have the word label marriage. But what is marriage? Marriage is unconditional, lifelong, exclusive promises of total union with the other person. So that's the first theme in the gospel story of sex. It's not just something you do, it does something to you. It unites people together in a profound way and that only makes sense if their unity is also emotional and social and financial and legal and spiritual as well as physical. The second theme in the gospel story about sex follows on directly, uh, and that is that precisely because sex is so powerful, it can be a powerful force for terrible harm as well as for good. Do sex wrongly, violating its unitive function, and it can really hurt people. That's why sexual violence or coercion or abuse is so vehemently, fiercely condemned in the Bible because those things do such damage to people. If, if sex meant nothing, if it was just a physical transaction, much like shaking hands, then it would matter so much less. But we know that it matters. It matters precisely because it means something. Which leads to the third theme in the gospel story about sex, which is that sex is part of what God redeems. Jesus teaches uh, two things about sex and marriage. He both reaffirms the dignity and relativizes the significance. He reaffirms the dignity and relativizes the significance. He reaffirms the dignity of sexual marriage by specifically referencing and reinforcing the creation narrative that God created the male and female that the two become one flesh. Some say Jesus didn't talk about homosexual relationships, etc. You may have heard this line again and again. Jesus didn't talk about homosexual relationships. It's just not true. It's just simply false. Um, he spoke about homosexual relationships precisely by affirming and endorsing male-female marriage as what marriage is given by God. Don't let anyone con you on that one. And... And at the same time, he relativizes the significance of marriage and sex. Uh, think about this. While Israel was the people of God, then, then it all depended, God's project in the world all depended on sex, actually. That is, on having children to maintain the bloodline of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus said that God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones. What, what makes you a child of God in the new covenant is not bloodline, in other words, not reproduction, but faith, living active trust in the living and true God and his grace in the cross of Christ. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus was neither married nor sexually active. And he was a son of God, the most human human ever. Unlike almost every culture or religion before or since, being married 
or being not married is neither here nor there spiritually. One state is not greater than the other, nor more or less spiritual. Both are equally realms of God's grace and theatres of God's glory. The gospel story about sex, it does something to you. It's not just something you do. It unites you with another person. Secondly, uh, under the conditions of the fall, when we're in a broken world where people hurt each other, then sex becomes particularly a place where it can really damage other people if we don't respect its power and purpose. And third, Jesus both reaffirms but also relativizes sex. Yes, it's part of what uh, he reaffirms in marriage. And at the same time, he makes it perfectly clear that being married or unmarried, being sexually fulfilled or being uh, uh, sexually uh, not expressed makes no difference at all when it comes to spirituality and value and significance. And so how do we live out this gospel story about sex faithfully and fruitfully? Five sound bites. First, I want to say something about mutuality. This is sex in marriage. Sex unites, it connects spouses together profoundly in intimacy and ecstasy. Or at least that's the idea. But sometimes that's not the experience. And one of the things that can get in the way uh, is ideas that are meant to be helpful but become deeply problematic. And so in response to the erasing of sexual polarity and difference in the modern story about sex, there can be a conservative backlash, making sexual polarity and difference the headline rather than the footnote. And so the story here goes something like this. Men are just sexually different from women. They have a sexual desire that is basically and often actually uncontrollable and so it is the duty of the wife to sexually satisfy him whenever and however he wants and that her failure to do that means that he is not responsible for seeking sexual outlet elsewhere. Now, to be honest, that all sounds so, so utterly bizarre to me as to be barely worth taking seriously, but then kind of, oh my goodness, it turns out to be reasonably common in Christian books about marriage. And so just in case it needs to be said, that's crazy talk. The issues that arise because of sexual desire differences in marriage are real and they are complex. But what is crystal clear is that there is absolutely no blame shifting available for anyone, husband or wife, because he or she is the higher desire spouse and the fact that working that out in the marriage is an ongoing challenge. Uh, there is a, a terrific book with a slightly unfortunate title. It's called The Great Sex Rescue. So these are the two books I want you to read if you're interested in the topic afterwards, and who's not? Uh, the Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and The Great Sex Rescue. Very helpful. These two, uh, second thing to say, second soundbite, there's, you know, all of these could be whole sermons, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is to say something about pornography. Uh, it is absolutely clear that pornography is a perversion of sex. It has to be, doesn't it? Since sex is unitive and by definition, 
you can't be united to the actors in pornography. Uh, the statistics on pornography are horrendous in terms of the widespread nature of its use. The science on porn is as bad. It messes with you. It rewires your brain. And so can I say to you that if you view pornography, do something about that today. Like as in this day. Not, don't wait till Monday. Do something about it today. Call me or Angus. He's back. Angus, you can leave a message. He'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> but you do it today. Or Alison or your gospel community leader. Bring what is so often in the darkness into the light and make a start on breaking the pattern. Louise Perry, who I mentioned, she, she wrote, she's the one who wrote the, um, the case against the sexual revolution. Uh, along with many, many others now. Again, non-believing, secular feminists. Draws attention to the essentially abusive nature of the $100 billion porn industry. Uh, her, her claim, her, her, her way into this is to say, in the same way as you would never buy a product if you knew that it was specifically made by slave labour, Right, that there was a direct link from that kind of industry of abusive in its nature to the product and you, you'd never do it. She says, likewise, get out of porn. Just don't do it, ever. So marriage, pornography. Thirdly, homosexuality. In 212 words. Uh, the attempt to find biblical endorsement for homosexuality in any form is a total failure. Again, I just want to make this perfectly clear. The attempt to find biblical endorsement for homosexuality in any form is a total failure. The texts just cannot be made to say what revisionists want them to say. Okay, it's just... I, I, there is all the leading scholarship in this area, I think, is perfectly clear about that. The crucial issue here, it seems to me, is the one of identity. What does it mean to be human? Is sexuality and sexual expression, and of course you see as soon as you get into this question, it goes beyond homosexuality but uh, to other life experiences, um, including being single. Is sexuality and sexual expression the core of our humanity or is there something even deeper? And because of this week, I thought I would uh, give you a quote from the Anglican Church of all things. This is what the Anglican Church actually thinks. There are some who depart from that, in which case, let them depart. This is what the Anglican Church actually thinks. This is called a resolution that was passed by all the bishops of all the Anglican churches back in 19, I think, 98, called Lambeth 1, Resolution 1, colon 10. Okay, if you want to look that up, you can just Google that. Lambeth 1.10. There can be, it says, no description of human reality in general or in particular outside the reality of Christ. There can be no description of human reality in general or in particular, that is for a society or for an individual, outside the reality of Christ. We must be on guard, therefore, against constructing any other ground for our, our identities than the redeemed humanity given to us in him. 
Okay, see the point this morning saying that our identity as persons, as human beings, is fundamentally given to us by Jesus Christ. The redeemed humanity given to us in him. Those who understand themselves as homosexuals no more and no less than those who do not are liable to false understandings based on personal or family histories, emotional dispositions, social settings and solidarities formed by common experiences or ambitions. Uh, that is a long-winded and Anglican way of saying that there are all sorts of sub-issues in our identity. Uh, I'm Hungarian. Uh, I'm a male. Um, I grew up in Australia. Uh, I have a certain nationality. Um, I am right-handed. And so these are all relevant to my identity, but, but it's a false understanding to say that they constitute who I am. Our, our sexual affections, the, the piece goes on, can no more define who we are than our class, race, or nationality. See, we're quite good at knowing that no, you, know, you can't discriminate against people on the basis of their class. We're all human together. You can't discriminate people against on the basis of their um, uh, nationality. They're all human, all human together. And so the, the um, piece concludes, at the deepest ontological level, therefore, there is no such thing as a homosexual or a heterosexual. Therefore, there are human beings, male and female, called to redeemed humanity in Christ, endowed with a complex variety of emotional potentialities and threatened by a complex variety of forms of alienation. The point that the, the article is making is this. If sexuality is at the core of our humanity, then to deny oneself sexual expression could never make sense. Right? That, that's right, isn't it? If sexuality is the essence of what it is to be human, then to deny sexual expression could never make sense because that would be to deny your very humanity. But in the gospel, we find that the core of our humanity... What makes us human is that we're created by God and redeemed in Jesus to be children of God, loved and purposed and destined. And if that's the case, then contrary to what the modern story about sexuality says, there is something, or, or rather there is someone for whom it makes sense to subordinate your sexual desire and sexual expression for the sake of them. Or to just say it simply, there are worse things than being sexually unfulfilled. There are worse things than being sexually unfulfilled. Which is to go against the grain of being a child of God and loved by him and gifted by him and redeemed by him to live for him. That's what it is to be human. To, to sacrifice those things, that would be truly life-crushing. Finally, when sex has been misused, it's, it's because sex is not nothing that sexual sin matters. And it is because sex is not ultimate that sexual sin is forgivable. You need to hold both of those two things together. It's because sex is not nothing that sexual sin matters and it's because sex is not ultimate that sexual sin is forgivable. Sexual sin runs deep. It's not ultimate. It doesn't want 
form our humanity, but is very deep in us. Which is why the gospel promises of cleansing, deep, real, full, perfect, white, no stain remaining cleansing in the grace of God matters so much. Your sexual sin is not as bad as Jesus' death is good. It's very important that you hear that. Your sexual sin is not as bad, not as powerful as Jesus' atoning death is good. And likewise, if you've been sinned against, if you've been sinned against, hurt in ways that do not go away, know that although you may not get an answer to the why questions, why did this happen? Why me? What you do get an answer to is the who question. Who is with you? Who is for you? Who will never hurt you and never forsake you and never abandon you? There is one like that. It's Jesus. He knows what it is to be hurt and forsaken and abandoned in the depth of his being. And he stands with you. A modern story about sex, a gospel story about sex, and some sound bites. Let me just pause there. Alison, she gives me the thumbs up. That's just, she doesn't mean that. She's just being nice. So, any, 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 with that dampening sort of comment, <laughs> any, any questions? Anyone want to ask anything? So the question is, given that this is such a, this is trench warfare right here. This is really, really, this is the point of contest. It's the, uh, and of course, it's like an um, inverse iceberg, if I could put it like that. It's like, if, so imagine if, an, you know, normally icebergs, there's the tip and there's the big thing underneath and the clashes are underneath. I'm saying invert that up. So imagine the tip was underneath and it was only the big fat bits were bumping into each other at the top. But actually the real energy is underneath. The, the stories are where the real warfare is, not the particular question here. Given that it is that sort of trench warfare, though, um, how do we speak? And so I've got two things to say about that. One, I think it's really very helpful to have these secular feminist authors with, with impeccable secular feminist credentials who are saying, this is not working for women, right? As the sexual revolution is not working for women. Um, there's, there's another book I can point to which is saying that the gender thing, this, this quick story that we've been told about how uh, uh, sex is not binary and gender is not binary, it, it's bollocks. It's nonsense. Don't believe it anymore. And this is secular feminist writers. So that one of the crucial things to hear to say is, bring, like Paul did in his speech in um, Athens, he brings in cultural authorities to join him because all truth is God's truth, and so he brings in cultural authorities. That's the first thing. More importantly, I think, uh, is this. Um, on, on this question, especially in personal relationship, tone matters enormously. And so here's the thing. You have to be able to speak about sex and sexuality and the, and the gospel story about sex in a way that does not have even the merest whiff of self-righteousness about it. And there's only one way that you'll do that, which is to indwell the gospel. Because the gospel tells you that you 
You are right now both far, far worse than you ever dared face and much, much more loved than you ever dared hope. That's a Tim Keller quote. And it tells you both of those two things at the same time. And if you believe both of those two things at the same time about your present, right, not just about your past. See, you can be a Christian and go and think, look, I used to be bad, but now I'm really good. In which case, you'll be self-righteous. In which case, please just shut up. Don't talk if you're self-righteous because you leak, you drip self-righteousness. But if you get the gospel in your heart where you know that, that even with the minute little self-awareness that each of us has, that we are far, far worse than we ever dare face, that there is darkness and selfishness and a willingness to hurt other people if need be and a disinterest in God and God's ways, if that's me and at the same time, the very same time, I'm far, far more loved than I ever dared hope and that Jesus died for me even in that state, then what that will do is that will shred my pride and it will calm my fears and it means that I won't be self-righteous. And when you're like that, then you'll be capable of talking about this in a way that will not be problematic because it won't be condemnatory of others. And you've just got to keep fronting up and not, not allow others' condemnation of you to either cause you to be quiet or to cause you to become condemnatory of them. You've got, to be, you've got to be a gospel person. And a gospel person is someone who has not the faintest whiff of self-righteousness about them. Yeah. And I think the, when we say the church, I think the, the answer is, um, given how imp almost impossible it is to control the narrative of any kind of moment uh, in any media context, uh, that, that's just a losing game. And we'll just, I don't think there is a way to do it in the media. Uh, uh, that, which works. We will not get listened to. We won't get fairly reported. Uh, the church will always be treated poorly. Um, the, that is, in other words, there's another way of saying that the media is part of and, and a, an essential component of the secular story. And um, so it just doesn't matter how nice. I mean, there are some great spokespeople, uh, Sam Albury. So this is, this is another way of trying to run the Run the thing. Sam Albury is a same-sex attracted Christian man who's celibate for Christ, and even he won't get a fair treatment. Um, so, at the at the public level, I think we'll just keep getting smashed. And I, I I guess my point there is to say, don't be surprised about it. Don't don't raise your hopes. Don't get disappointed when it happens. Um, um, one of the really fun things that happens uh, uh, at with our kids club each couple, each six months is that um, uh, good inner westy church-bashing families find that they love um, base camp because it's really great for their kids. And they're really, they're just, they're sort of, they struggle. And so the, what they do is say, well, we, I've had people say almost exactly, the church sucks, but this church is okay. And it's like, why don't you put those two things together in connection with each other and say, maybe that's not quite the case. Um, and so I think in that sense, our job is to be as, as good, as humble, as gentle, as kind, as faithful, um, as welcoming, um, as inclusive, you know, all of that, and as Jesus-focused and gospel-centered all at the same time as we can possibly be. Yeah. So that, that's a very interesting question. And um, the, the, so the question is, is there a possibility that there might be sort of ongoing 
clarification or, or revision and so on? And I think um, the answer uh, to that is no. Um, and the reason is, is this. There's the, the, um, the idea you raised is a question of, of whether Earth went around the sun or the sun went around the Earth or whether the Earth was flat and so on. It turns out that when you, at a, at a I'm going to say something like, on any fair reading, uh, there's, there's almost nothing in the Bible that says the Earth is flat or round, or that the Earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the Earth. Right? There's almost nothing in the Bible about that. And so whether Christians believed stuff because of their time and place and culture, that's one thing. What's in the Bible is a different thing. And so there's almost nothing in the Bible about that. On the question of sexuality, because it is a deep part of human experience, there actually is a lot in the Bible on it, and it all says one thing only. So to say that the Earth goes around the sun to have a heliocentric view of the solar system, it's like that doesn't contradict anything in the Bible, really. The, the one place that you get the sun going, rising, we still talk about sunrise, right? That's our language. Uh, we don't mean that the sun rises, we mean that the earth turns. Uh, but we use the word sunrise because we all know what that means. And so in some one or two poetic sections in the Bible, using poetry, then it just hints, just gives this sort of reference in passing. To, you, know, you see what I'm saying? There's just it's tiny one verse here. In, in, when the regard to human sexuality, it's hundreds of verses, really. Again and again and again and again, all saying only one thing, which is what I've brought to you today. And so the, the challenge is that to, to revise that means to not just interpret a bit of one verse of poetry a little bit differently, or uh, it means to overturn an, the, the single testimony, the single witness of the Bible. Um, and we, part, of the, part of the thing is... Um, um, if, if Jesus is God's word to us and Jesus endorses all of this, then the problem is not just overturning a text, it's overturning Jesus and saying, actually, our culture knows better than someone who was from all eternity, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Uh, and we can't, we, we just... We can't do that. You know, we've got to stay faithful to Jesus because uh, he's the living and true son of God. Um, and in the end, I'm just going to say, uh, he knows better than me. And actually, I'm going to say he knows better than you too. Um, and I feel pretty, that's where, that's where the, the church and Christians have to stay. And with, as soon as you say that, with, Absolute recognition that we are far, far worse and we are far, far more loved than we are. And therefore, that's not an arrogant thing. That's, not a, that's a humble thing which says, I don't know, he does. Yep. Um, so the, the issue here is not the sun and the, the, solar, the physics, the solar system, but slavery. Um, I don't really know enough about the history of, of the, the church and slavery. Um, what I would say is that... Um, Again, uh, there's no, I don't think there's any, there's no endorsement of slavery. There's only an assumption of slavery in the Bible. Uh, there are some anti-slavery elements in Israel, in, in, the, in the law of Israel, 
I think this is true to say, you weren't permitted to have an Israelite as your slave. I think that's right. So there are some elements of anti-slavery in the Bible. Uh, it's distasteful to us that, that there was permission to keep non-Israelites as slaves in the Old Covenant, but that's assumptive, not prescriptive. And so what changed was, it seems to me, the thinking better of the dignity and value of human beings into the assumption. In, in the Roman Empire, uh, it, it might disappoint us that there was no revolutionary kind of move to say uh, we should oppose the Roman Empire and overturn slavery, but the, the Christians didn't see themselves, and I think for obvious reasons, as a, um, a political movement. It, that would be akin to the Christians in North Korea now saying that, um, you know, starting to agitate for democracy. Uh, Christians in Korea, you know, you might well say that democracy is consistent, more consistent with the Bible than anything else. I happen to think that that's probably true. Uh, and certainly the way North Korean politics runs, that's pretty inconsistent with human dignity. And, and to say that we want to be um, critical of the Christians in North Korea for not being more vocal and public about their opposition to the abuse of human rights and autocracy in North Korea, I think I'd just say, yeah, well, that's what you get when you're in North Korea. You're just, you're, you know, you... And so my view on that one is, again, there's, there's the, 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 it comes down to what's in the text, and the texts are assumptive rather than prescriptive. You, you could, you, the problem with the, with the, the, the I'd want to think to say, the problem with saying the church revised the teaching of something, why doesn't it revise the teaching of this? There's no, there's no end to that. Well, why don't we revise the teaching that Jesus died on the cross? Or why don't we revise the teaching that Jesus rose again from the dead? And, and there's no way to stop those things. And so the only way to, to, to handle that question methodologically is to say, well, you've got to go back to the texts and see whether the texts permit revision or not.